1: All right, for those who have listened to the show, usually I have like a little lead up and I talk about how I know this person, our relationship, how far back we go. And this will be one uh, where I've actually never met the person. On Twitter, so I feel like there's a relationship right there because I'm a proponent of finding people on Twitter who are like-minded and you develop a relationship. And that's kind of the case here with Charlotte Clymer because uh, early on in the Apprentice Host presidential years, I noticed this person out there, didn't know anything about her, just that she was with me, uh, you know, as far as our thinking about what a horrible decision it was to put this guy a president. Uh, and I was like, oh, I like this. Let's find out more. And, and we just sort of hit it off. We were like-minded in, for various reasons. And I'm really happy that we have the opportunity to talk today. So welcome, Charlotte.
2: Thank you, Kenny. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. I, I have been looking forward to this specific interview for a couple months now.
1: Uh, on your uh, profile, if you Google you, th- there's a lot of different things that are said about you. Uh, activist, writer, veteran, proponent of LGBTQ, veterans affairs, anything else? Like, like what else you want to add to the pile?
2: I am, a, I am a former rumored nominee for Secretary of Education.
1: Did you know about this? Is that real?
2: I'm not even kidding. So, about a month after uh, President Biden was elected, but before inauguration, somebody started—I think it was on Parlor, the conservative uh, app—but somebody started a rumor that President Biden was going to nominate nominate me for Secretary of Education. Now, to be clear, I'm not even qualified to be a teacher. Like mm-hmm. I'm—I've never been in a classroom. Don't know how to teach. Uh, not an education policy expert. I have zero connections. Wait a minute. Did you see Trump
1: Did you see Trump Secretary of Education? Okay, you're eminently uh, qualified.
2: Well, that's fair. That's a fair point. Uh, but this thing went super viral uh, on all the conservative apps and the websites. I started getting Fox News calling me to ask, you know, if I could confirm that the nomination had been made. I mean, it's just, you know, crazy land, essentially. Um, and I, I had a little fun with it, but it was also very strange just how that disinformation gets sped up in
1: that kind of way. Well, you're used to facing critics or having a long list of replies on your tweets, are you not? <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. No, you're not wrong. You're not wrong about that.
1: Do you That's enjoy true. the battle? I know some of my friends enjoy the battle. I can't tell if you do or are you more often just kind of correcting people. Like somebody will say something uh, military wise. Right. Well, actually, I served, you know, I mean, right. It's like, there's times where it's almost like you get to say, here's my whole resume. You're going after me just for this one point I made or who I am. But do, yeah, you, do you like the battle?
2: I don't, I don't, I, you know, I, I, gotta be honest with you. I don't. Um, and that's not to say that those who do are, you know, um, in the wrong or anything, I, I'm exhausted with Twitter these days. I think it's annoying. I think it's a terrible website, to be honest with you. And the only reason that I'm still on there is because it is a front line in the war on disinformation. And if we don't have reasonable adults taking up space and you know fact-checking, making sure people are informed, uh, building bridges between different communities, then the folks who are up to no good, that's what they're going to do instead.
1: Yeah, I mean... It's up to you and me to save the country right now. The election's coming. We're running yep. this before. Okay, so it's if we fail here today in this conversation, <laughs> we, we, we own a lot of responsibility. No, we talked about this going in. I said, how do we not run Charlotte before? It'd be silly with everything that's at stake mm. to run it and guess what happened. Uh, could you guess what's about to happen? Would you Would you hazard a guess on how things are going to go?
2: Oh, um, so if the election were held today, uh, and, and and by the way, we're, we're recording this on October 19th, yep. I think that Democrats would probably get at least 52 Senate seats, and we would probably barely lose the House. That would be my prediction for today. But here's the thing, and I want people to to really understand this. Every week in an election cycle is like a lifetime. Anything can happen. We don't know. Anything can happen. And I'm going to be doing my damnedest to call as many people as possible, raise money for every candidate I can, really leave it all out on the field and make sure that the morning after the midterms, I know that I did everything within my power to keep Democrats in power and save democracy. And I'd like to think that we're all going to do that.
1: I'm astounded forever, probably, how some people who otherwise and people in my life or, or just casual acquaintances, how they don't see it. And I'm not saying everybody has to see everything the way I see things, mm-hmm. but just how do they not see what's at stake and what happened to our country and the disinformation that you spoke of. And they're just like, uh, baseball playoffs are here. Football's, you know, like, like all these distractions and the wrongs. I love baseball. I love football. Like, I'm glad they're happening. I like movies, you know, I like yeah. to take walks. I like to play golf. Like I like all those things that make you feel good, make you feel human. But there's so much going on and it's so heavy and it kills me how many people are just thinking it's just not going to affect them. The, the, no matter what happens, it'll all still be old U.S. of A.
2: I think you're right. And I think I think a, a, another problem, too, is that people are just exhausted. You know, this is the fourth consecutive election cycle in which it seems like everything is on the line, everything. And I think folks are so tired of hearing for the fifth or sixth consecutive year that if they don't do something the world's going to end and, and by the way i mean i, I don't necessarily disagree w- with that with that concern but i can understand why people are just tired of hearing it
1: it's i like, really do yeah the 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 cry wolf thing right like how many yeah. times you're going to fall for that i mean look at georgia in particular this this one kills me because when warnock and ossoff won that was the night before the insurrection. Mm-hmm. That that blows me away. I was up until late. I was sending money to Atlanta food banks. I was celebrating. I was like, thank you, Georgia. And now Herschel Walker might be elected the next senator of Georgia.
2: Yeah, we are We are in a very, very tough period. And I, I, I still believe that Reverend Warnock is going to pull it out. I really do. Um, I think he'll win, but the fact that it's even this close is embarrassing for everybody. I mean, it's everybody involved should be embarrassed that, that Herschel Walker, you know, has a chance here.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think part of it is people at a young age are sort of trained mostly with in their family influence, you know, more often than not, Oh, we're a Republican family. Oh, we're a Democrat, you know, Right. And so we oh, already, sure. so the country 50, 50 right there. And then no matter what happens, they're going to make excuses for it and stick with that side because they're fiscally conservative, they're for small government, all these little things that got trotted out when I was a kid, I'm older than twice as old as you. Um, <laughs> and, and you don't and, look at, you don't look at, <laughs> but people go back to what's comfortable, what they think is right. What they think good old America should be. And they're able to be just oblivious to the reality of what we saw the last, I count it six years, but you know, whatever number of years you want to say this yeah. big decline and this, it's not misinformation It's this like willfully uninforming people, right? Disinformation, the difference between somebody made a mistake, that's misinformation, right? It's, right. it's a concerted. And if you believe somebody like my friend, Sarah Kenzie, or it's a worldwide effort, it isn't just the U S has these, you know, it's, Conspiratorial around the world, collectively, all these forces kind of coming together to have, you know, dominant leaders in these different countries and do away with democracy.
2: And you know what's funny here, Kenny, too? Is, That's a you cheery know,
1: fucking note, I know, but <laughs>
2: you know. cheery as fuck. Yes, it is. <laughs> um, you know, I'm from Texas. I'm, I'm from a, you know, multi generational southern family. Much of my family's conservative. And I remember when the Republican Party was about small government, leaving families alone, you know, letting letting people basically make their own destiny through hard work and, and quote unquote bootstraps. However, we feel about that. That was the that was the, the philosophy. And now we have a Republican Party who wants to make decisions for families, who wants to control the private sex lives of other people. Who wants to go into your bedroom and tell you what you can and can't do? The federal government that they should be able to do that. Uh, You know, we have a Republican Party who wants to control healthcare choices for your kids. Who wants to erase any and all history uh, that they find uncomfortable? So, Dr. King, they want to rip up you know anything that Dr. King has said uh, that makes them uncomfortable out of out of the history books. And at some point, you just got to say enough, enough. This is this is ridiculous. This is not the Republican Party that I knew when I was a kid. This is a Republican party that is extremist, uh, that is hypocritical, that is very dangerous, and that has no regard for the respect and well-being of American families. And, And I'm sick and tired of it, but you know, mark my words, if Democrats get at least 52 senators, and if we hold the house, we're gonna be just fine. We'll be okay. We'll be able to do a bunch of cool stuff. We'll be able to pass you know, all this great legislation to make, you know, life easier for working families. Uh, We'll be able to probably add D.C. as a state, get two more Senate seats. Uh, We'll be able to do a lot of things that will completely change the game, expand the judiciary to finally represent all American people and not just an elitist view. There are so many things that we're going to be able to do if we hold Congress, but we can't do it if we lose Congress. Mm -hmm. And if we lose Congress, it's going to be a hell of a lot harder to win in 2024. So people need to understand that the next three weeks of any three weeks in their lifetime, and I'm not kidding about this, of any three weeks in their lifetime, the next three weeks are the most critical to leaving everything out on the field. Let's get this shit done.
1: I read of a really cool project we're joining where it's a letter writing campaign. I was just saying, what am I supposed to do? Knock on every day. It's Piper. How do you say the last name? Bravo. yeah. yeah the, the actress I, and Texas person, right? That's um, right. And so I responded like, hell yeah, That I like that because it's different. Literally write letters, send them to some folks, show up in the mail a week before the election. The old Eleanor Roosevelt handwritten letter trick. See if that one works as well.
2: You know what? I've been getting into letter writing a lot lately. Uh, I I think it's a lost art. It's something that's very personal and it makes the people that you care about feel good to get that handwritten note in the mail. In fact, look at this. I have like all these letters that are going to go out tomorrow. Um, Piper is amazing because she understands that politics is about personal relationships. And I, I'm not talking about networks and people, you know, in positions of power, I'm talking about your community, knowing who lives in your building, knowing who lives next door to you, understanding what their struggles are and how to address them. Piper understands that better than almost anyone. And in the big public figure space, celebrities, essentially- and so I'm not surprised at all that she's doing this. That's that's the, who she
1: is. There've been a John Legend. Uh, there's a couple, oh, yeah. N, couple NBA coaches who who uh, I'm very proud of what they do. You know, uh, Coach Pop down there at San Antonio and Steve Kerr. Coach not first. that they're not that they're alone, but you know, they really stick themselves out there. And then you got all the people like just do sports, stick to sport. Don't don't do other stuff, but. I think so many people, we had Sue Bird. She was just our last uh, guest that aired. Like, the, the women of the WNBA were incredible. I mean, they basically won, helped win for Warnock, right? When they wore those t-shirts. Oh, that's right. Yep. And, and Sue's yep. like, because I was like, you know, it has got to be more than just the t-shirt. says, I agree, except that t-shirt alone was such a statement. They came out for games, vote Warnock. And some people hated that. They are like, what? just play basketball. We don't want you to do other stuff. I look at it the other way. I want my athletes to be more well-rounded and have something to say and care about our society.
2: You know what's so funny about that statement? You know what my one of my favorite sports memories ever is? The 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 1980 Miracle on Ice hockey team. Mm-hmm. That is one of the greatest American sports moments ever. Something that we can look at and be very proud of. That was incredibly political. That was saturated with politics. Mm-hmm. That was our country, some of our best athletes making a political statement on the ice against the awfulness of communism. And yet the same people who praise that team are telling black women in the WNBA to shut up and don't talk about their politics. I, I, find, I think that's pretty fucking hypocritical.
1: Yeah, I, I've never understood. And, and you go back to the 36 Olympics, Jesse Owens you know, winning in front of Hitler. Could there not have been a more you know, a stronger statement, like, look at that. Say black men from America just kicked your ass and you guys are all about, you know, Aryan supremacy.
2: That's right. That's right. And it, you know, it's funny. Like uh, I remember, you know, just uh, something to the effect that Jesse Owens was treated better at that time by some of the German officials than he was back home by a lot of American sports officials. And it just breaks my heart. Any, can, I mean, can you believe
1: that? I mean, Hitler studied America, right? About our yeah. treatment of our black citizens, with regard to how he could suppress citizens over there.
2: Have you seen that new documentary, by the way, the, the Ken Burns documentary? I
1: I got through one and a half, and I and I'm coming back to the rest of it. Not that I I just was tired. I could. It, you need your concentration. You need to stay with it. He said it oh, might yeah. be his best, and it was painful to watch. Because I knew some of this, but he put it in starker terms. I was like, man, that like, there's so many things that are so great about our country. And anytime yeah. you got people who think if you criticize America and you say this or that or talk about the history you brought up earlier, you hate America. It's like, no, you don't. You love America. You want it to be the best it can be and live up to the ideals that you know were put in place in the Constitution you know, in the beginning, right? That's right. That, I mean, that was like, that's like what Kaepernick was doing and people criticize him, he, he was silently, peacefully protesting. He wasn't saying he hates the country. He wasn't saying even he hates all cops. He wasn't saying certainly that he hates the military, although people tried to make that be a thing. It's like, he's anti, no, he's, military has nothing to do with it. We're talking about, you know, how people are treated in the streets.
2: He literally asked a Green Beret, like, how should I right? do this in a respectful manner? And he took his advice, which was, which was absolutely right, by the way.
1: Yeah, that's Nate Boyer, uh, who has a great movie, by the way. Uh, about the merging of veterans and players, ex athletes. Yeah. It's, it's worth your time. Um, and he has an organization dedicated to that where, when people leave the military, they've lost that camaraderie, they've lost that team ethic. When people leave sports, same thing. Now, you know, a retired guy is 36 years old. Well, you know, he might have money, but you know, he doesn't have that thing that he had. And they made a really cool movie about that loss and about the bonding between the two. And so they literally have an organization, ex military. And ex-athletes, and they just do stuff together. They hang out, they talk, they they lift weights, they they box, they play basketball. You know, and it's just we like, need more of like, that. We need more of that. Absolutely, by the way. we
2: need you know, we need men talking to each other, you know, doing you know, kind of unpacking stuff with each other, supporting each other. I think that's great. That's
1: awesome. I I support one in my state of Washington called Growing Veterans up in Mount Vernon, mm. just north of Seattle, and that's what they do. They farm together. Then they take they take what they make and they sell it. And what they don't sell, they give to veterans who need a little assistance. And while they're out there farming, they're talking and working through shit like you were just talking about. Like there's so many, you know, there's horse training that does the same thing. There's so many different ways where we could be communicating better. Even if one guy thinks he's a Republican, one thinks he's a Democrat or they're not political at all or whatever. Just start meeting on a human level, you know, but we just seem Getting those moments to happen seem harder than they ever were, I guess, is the best way to put it.
2: And that annoys the hell out of me, let me tell you, Kenny. It really does annoy me. I think for a large chunk of this country, uh, on the left or the right, the worst thing you could do, apparently, is be friends with someone from the opposite end of the political spectrum, which I think is bullshit. I want to be friends with people with different political beliefs. I want to have that kind of relationship where we can talk about things rationally in good faith. Um, who is it? Uh, 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 Alyssa Fair Griffin, uh, who is Trump's press secretary. Uh, I met her through a Georgetown fellowship program. Uh, and we're, we're very different in our political beliefs. But what I found in her was someone who was willing to discuss in good faith the issues and was willing to have the kind of conversation that would lead to greater understanding between people who disagree. And that is what we need more of. You can't just cut people off because... You don't agree with their politics. We're, we're never going to get anywhere doing that. It doesn't make much sense to me.
1: I might need your counsel in that regard because <laughs> I I per- in my personal life I think I definitely have cut people like where what's there to talk about? I don't want to talk about the weather. We all look outside, and know what the fucking weather is, and <laughs> and but I I hundred percent agree with you that we can we can find bonding on certain things that we can both work together on that might. You know have nothing to do with our political leanings i think the difference for me was trump was so wrong and so reprehensible that i couldn't i just couldn't believe anybody could support him period so anybody who did i immediately like what the fuck is wrong with you like wh- what do we have in common if you actually support that guy like that that's yeah. how that's how it hit me that it was such a, such a dividing line in the sand. Like you got to be me. Like, I mean, I, I likened it to, I assume there were families in Germany in the thirties that debated Hitler, good or bad. Right. Like that, that was a thing. Yeah. Right? So,
2: yeah. No, you're absolutely right. No. And I, I, and I, I, I want to be clear about this. That is a very good point. I think what I mean more is like, if there's good faith present, you should take advantage of that. Now, if someone is, sure. in, is exercising bad faith, if they're, you know, Uh, willfully oblivious to reason, if they refuse to hear someone else out, if they just go down this path of destruction and and antipathy and the kind of things that don't lead to community, then yeah, don't, don't waste your time on them. But if someone who you disagree with is stepping forward and saying, I still think I'm right, I'm willing to have the conversation and recognize basic facts, we have to take advantage of those moments. We really do.
1: Well, that's the toughest thing is there used to be an agreement on the basic facts. And then the liberals could argue for this and their conservatives for that. And maybe, maybe not. They meet in the middle. Now Mm -hmm. there's like up is down and down is up. And there's the old adage in journalism. If one side says it's raining and the other says it's not raining, you don't report both sides as equal facts. You go outside and see if it's fucking raining or not. (laughs) And you say, oh, the guy like I I liken it this way. I've said this a million times when I did SportsCenter if we had the head coach of the Lakers or whoever that constantly would call into us after the, you know, during the show, Hey, we won a 200 to three. That was the final score. We wouldn't report that. We would, that, does, that score doesn't sound right. And we wouldn't bring him back on the show because he's lying every time. And yet these Sunday talk shows keep bringing on the same liars week after week after week. And they treat them as equals and then the whole false equivalency thing over and over and over again.
2: I, Yeah, I'll be real with you. I am not a fan of Chuck Todd. I'm just not. I, I think that Tim Russer was one of the greatest American journalists to ever live because of his incredibly profound and balanced way of approaching politics, that he wanted to ensure good faith, that he was respectful, but he did press people. He wanted to get to the root of a problem and talk about it. What Chuck Todd does is, you know, let's say that you, you know, let's say, Kenny, that you, you released a press statement saying something like the moon is made of cheese. And you, you went on, you know, meet the press to talk with Chuck Todd, but I asked you about it. And you said, well, listen, you know, I think it could be made of cheese. I think it may, you know, it may, maybe it's not made of cheese. Who knows? I don't know. Chuck Todd would say, well, that's interesting. Let's move on to the next topic. That's what he would do. He wouldn't press you and hold you accountable. We need journalists more than ever to hold people accountable in power. And I don't care if it's a Democrat or Republican. I don't care if it's Cuomo or Trump or whoever the hell. We need journalists to hold people accountable, especially in the political space. And right now what we're seeing, I think, is a is a lack of accountability that is detrimental to the health of our democracy.
1: Yeah, and they talk about the whole access journalism that, okay, we we need these guys on because we're gonna need to fill the show next week. What if they win? We're really gonna need them next after the mid, you know. So they play that game sometimes. Meanwhile, the public, yeah. again, it goes back to that thing. Is it raining or is it not raining? And and you could argue that it's cloudy and there's a mist. Okay, we can agree in the middle on that one, but not one side says this and one side says that. And, and additionally, just kind of the poisoning of the minds from Fox News, Breitbart, OAN, Newsmax, and you got your grandparents watching that and they won't turn the channel. And then you can't even have a real discussion because you guys are coming from such different places. You know, the, 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 the basic facts are, are so dissimilar Then one side's a fact and one side's not a fact, I guess I should really say.
2: Yeah, no, that, that, that's a great way to put it. And I, the access journalism piece is what I find so irritating over the last four or five years, especially. And I don't think it used to be this bad. I really don't. Yeah. There are special relationships. Yes. There are stories that are buried or stories that are traded up. You know, they're, there are things that have always been true in the media world that deserve criticism. But I think what we're seeing lately over the last four or five years especially is almost an abdication of accountability from many political journalists who should know better, who should be pressing folks like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who should be pressing folks uh, like Matt Gates, and who choose not to because they believe that if they do press them and they get on their bad side, their allies will no longer go on their programs. Their viewers will not, you know, won't tune in. And that is fucking heartbreaking. Yeah. Let me tell you, that is incredibly heartbreaking.
1: How about the bonus of, and you write, you're right on Substack and and elsewhere. And when you come across something you want to impart, hopefully you back it up an opinion with some factual basis that substantiates the point you're trying to make. That's how you're supposed to do it. There are a whole bunch of people who have been holding on to really important things I'm gonna save it for the book in 18 months. I was like, wait a minute, we, mm-hmm. we should have you should have told us that 18 months ago. Like that's very really important. That thing that you left as a big surprise for how I mean personally, when I keep hearing all these revelations, I'm like, I'm not none of it. I just kind of shrug. Of course that happened. Of course, Trump did that. Of course, they charged fourteen hundred dollars for the Secret Service to stay in his hotels, or you know, all these things are unsurprising. Yeah,
2: yeah. No, and 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 what's What's especially frustrating is that it seems to be a systemic thing now. You know, Maggie Haberman has been criticized a lot lately for this, holding scoops for her her book sales. But it's not just her. Mm. Bob Woodward has now done it twice. Mm -hmm. Bob Woodward did it with his last book. Uh, You know, he held this scoop on how Trump really felt about COVID early on in the pandemic so that he could sell his book later on. Uh, And then I remember a journalist, I forget her name, but uh, this, this great journalist pressed him on it uh, during this virtual event. And Woodward got really pissed off at her (laughs) because he knew he was wrong. But this, this, and I don't want to say bubble because I, 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 hate that. I hate that, that framing, but I think the DC political media, media ecosystem has this avalanche of disincentives. Against holding each other accountable so you know Woodward is still doing a ton of interviews he's still going to sell you know tens of thousands of books and the journalist who held him accountable I haven't heard of her since hmm. I'm sure she's I'm sure she's doing great work but there is no there, there's no really there's not really an incentive for holding people accountable and I firmly believe this and, and Kenny you can you can definitely lecture me about this way more than I can offer anything here because of, of your journalism but I firmly believe that a political journalist in this climate, but especially in this climate, should never hold a scoop for book sales. That is that is unethical. That is immoral. It, it it is a incredible disservice to the public. And I don't know how everyone who hasn't had the basics of media ethics or journalist journalism ethics isn't pissed off at this right now.
1: No, and and the other part of the problem is more and more, there's less and less real journalism, right? Like local newspapers getting cut back, staffing cut back at at the big corporations. And so you're not getting what, at least what I thought we used to get. The other part of it is just the flurry of information and outrage that happens on the, not just on the daily, but the hour. Haven't you had some days on Twitter? Like what in the fuck just happened today? It's just Tuesday and 19 things each one of them would have been a scandal that held people's attention for months. And that, no, that's like an eight minute story. That's gone. Hey, we're moving on to the next Ginny Thomas, the wife of a Supreme court justice helping with the fake electors. And, you know, I mean, that's just one of a hundred examples, but we get bombarded with it to such a degree. We get desensitized. Like mm-hmm. we've almost come to accept this is how fucked up our country is. And of course that happened. And it's only Wednesday. I can't wait till Friday. And, And then the next week and the next week. And it's been this this relentless thing. And like you were saying earlier, people keep, you have to vote this time. We have to stop this. And, and people are beat down by it all. I get so tired personally, just the emotional and the exhaustion of keeping up with daily news. And I'm not even in it. I'm just this outsider that did sports and I screw around and do commercials and a podcast. And I, I get to check out when I want to. The others are in it seven days a week, 24 hours a day, essentially.
2: And, and God bless those journalists who are doing the work, by the way. And I, I know I've been very critical of the media over the last 10 minutes, but there are so many great journalists out there who are really doing the work of informing the public, who you know, really don't waste any moments uh, to look into an issue, to make sure that all the facts are at hand, and then to communicate it to their readers in a way that is digestible and accessible, right? thank god for them but i do think that the institution that probably needs reform the most but that will never really have that reform is the media
3: Mm -hmm.
2: you know they're they're because who who is supposed to hold media accountable you know i i don't because we have a first amendment thank god for the first amendment i support it but there is no self-cleaning mechanism really or at least there should be but it's not working is it no (laughs)
3: man.
1: We're half hour into our little talk and probably should mention you're transgender at this point. Um,
2: <laughs> That's the scoop right there. That's the bigger bill.
1: No, I, I thought about this. Um, I'll be really honest. I thought going to an, and Gretchen, my wife, very wise. I was like, "Why don't you have a good fucking talk. Why, why, why does that have to be the first thing out of your mouth? Why does that have to define Charlotte yet in many ways, I mean, you're the one to answer for it. Whether it doesn't define you, or are you Charlotte, and you get to be the Charlotte part of it without us mentioning the transgender part of it? I hope I'm saying that appropriately, with the yeah, conveying yeah. the right respect to it all. Yeah. Um, when you came out and announced it, am I right? You did this on Twitter. Was that the first? Or
2: so I, I came out to, to some really close friends in the week before okay. then, and then uh, November 29, twenty seventeen, uh, I did a I did a coming out thread on Twitter. What time of day? Uh, and it was night. I think it was 9 30 or 10.
3: Okay.
2: It was pretty late. And I, I was nervous as hell. Yeah. Terrified, actually. I mean, you know, I don't want to be dramatic dramatic here, but it kind of felt like, you know, those, you know, at the Olympics, they have like the, what is the t- tallest one? Like the 60 foot one. Mm-hmm. I, well, I'm scared as hell of those things. I mean, that's really high up to be jumping in the water. Personally, I think that. And, you know, this more like
1: Acapulco cliff diving, but I think there's a board pretty high. But yes, you felt like you were jumping into the unknown is what it sounds like.
2: And, And, you know, I honestly thought that my career would be over. I thought, well, you know, I'm saying goodbye to politics, really. And in some ways. And instead, what happened was an overwhelming just avalanche of support from people, you know, not just friends, you know, not just people who are close to me. But really everyone I knew, uh, folks, who, folks who were very busy themselves but took time out of their day to make sure that they, you know, sent some words of encouragement and congratulations and whatnot. I had, you know, old army folks that I used to serve with, uh, conservatives, Republicans who reached out and, you know, congratulated me and said, hey, if you need anything, you know, let me know. This is, this is you know, who you are and we respect it. So it was a very positive thing. And I got to say, most trans people don't get that. You know, most trans or non-binary people come out and they don't have that kind of support. So I do consider myself incredibly lucky. And uh, I wouldn't change a thing about it. I that was a really special moment in my life. The fact that I had a support system in place that could help me when I came out, that was invaluable. And again, most most trans non-binary people across across society, not just talking about liberals or Republicans, because there are transgender Republicans, you know, folks across the spectrum don't have that kind of support system and it's tragic um and you know for folks who are listening what i worry about is those who are intimidated by this issue by trans issues specifically they they feel like okay i don't i don't know anything about this i'm worried about making a mistake and what i would tell you is that you know all of us make mistakes i make mistakes um you know i, I none of us are perfect and when you make a mistake or when there is a little bit of discomfort, that is an opportunity. That means that there's some learning to be had some kind of knowledge that is to be gained. And what I would encourage them to do is just make mistakes along with the rest of us. You know, of course you're going to mess Well, I'm I'm trying to watch my language, but I realize I don't have to now. Of course you're going to fuck up, right? Everyone's going to fuck up. Yeah. So if you're really not worried about misgendering someone or what, what have you, just know that the trans folks we we misgender each other sometimes by accident. It happens. Don't be intimidated by our community. Let's get to know each other so we can build those bridges, and then focus on more important things like putting food on families' tables, making sure that you know folks have a home to sleep in, you know, making sure that everyone is getting the resources they need, regardless of who they are. I I am as I am just as tired of talking about pronouns as the rest of you
1: if you're generic heterosexual white guy like me, there is that little fear of fucking it up saying like, I hopefully, you know where my heart is. We've communicated in other ways. So like we're on the same page on other things, but with regard to this very particular, very specific thing, definitely people who think they have a good heart go into, you know, bump into somebody at a coffee store. Should you you say the wrong thing? I mean, mostly the best way to do it with anybody, whatever their color, whatever their gender, whatever, whatever, just look them in the eye and treat them like another fellow human being. That, that, that's a good opening.
2: There you go. It, go. it goes back to good faith for me. And I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sound like a broken record with this good faith, bad faith thing. But when someone misgenders me or, or says the wrong thing, I ask myself a quick question. Is this person making an honest mistake? Or are they trying to hurt me? And if they're trying to hurt me and it's clear that they're trying to hurt me, that's different. That's when we're going to have some words. Mm. But if I know that they're, they just made a mistake. They didn't know any better. Let's talk about it real quick. There's no need to shame anyone. There's right. no need to make anyone feel bad. We can just talk about it real quick and just move on. <laughs> right. That's how it should be.
1: Yeah. I mean, I was in Buffalo for a Monday game opening week or second week. And I was at the breakfast at this little, little, little I was I mean, Buffalo's loaded. Uh, I was at this little inn and they were serving breakfast and there was this older guy next to, even older than me. And there was this cute little girl. She had very short hair, had, had a little, a bit of a boy look, I would say, but just had a short haircut is all it was. Mm. And the, and, and the guy was trying to be nice. And he said, young man, do you know how lucky you are? And the they didn't know they were even being talked to because it's a girl. Right. And right. he was trying to, give a compliment, like your mom's so nice to treat you to such a nice hotel. And I hope you have a great day. He was everything he was saying was positive, but he fucked up, which she was. And the mom said, she is having a great time. Like she handled it as well. as She could. I mean, it was almost to your point of, she tried to correct him without really getting in his face. Like that's a girl, not a boy. And those little moments are actually really important. If, if people would like let their guard down a bit and not be ready to go to battle on, every little stop at a coffee shop.
2: That's right. That's right. And I, I, I am just sick and tired of everyone being put in one of two boxes. Yeah. Cause I am definitely in not, not in one of two boxes. You know, I, there's the part of me who is a military veteran, who is a Christian who attends church, who is from Texas. But then there's the part of me who's a trans woman who lives in DC and has progressive values. Both of these are very much a part of me. Like these two people are the same person. And so when I meet someone who doesn't know any trans people and just automatically assumes that, oh, you you're trans, so you must believe this, 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 and this. Or, or on the other side, someone who only knows a certain kind of trans person, like say a progressive, and assumes, oh, so you're trans, so you must not like the military, you must not like religion, all mm-hmm. these things. I get upset with both these types of people because we should not put someone into a box like that. People are allowed to be complex. People are allowed to be multi multifaceted. And the more that we expect people to act according to our own stereotypes and prejudices, whether it is a conservative person, whether it's a progressive person, whether it's someone in the middle, the more that we're going to see this deterioration of our society, extend good faith to people and try to get them, get to know them as individuals.
1: I don't know how much introspection you do on a daily basis, but do you ever look back at almost like, you know, like it's, it was the first half was this. And here's the second half of, you know, I'm two different people. Or are you the same person that was evolving into what you are now? If, if oh, I,
2: I think same person who's evolved, you know, I mean, goodness gracious. I, you know, I was raised in central Texas in a conservative, conservative environment. I didn't know half the things uh, back then that I know now, but I think that's true for just about all of us. Right. True. Yeah. Most of us. are are far smarter 20 years, 40 years, 60 years down the road from when we were kids. And I feel bad for people who really want to get better, who want to learn more, who want to respect others. They just don't know where to start. So they get intimidated and they think, well, I would love to reach out to this person or this person or this community, but I'm worried about making mistakes. And I'm worried about someone saying that I'm a bad person because I'll make mistakes. That breaks my heart doesn't it break
1: your heart. Yeah, yeah. For sure. I mean, yeah. you talked about it already saying that you know, you're in a position of of privilege uh I guess given your color for one, given mm-hmm. you know, you've done well professionally or you're still growing in that and, and doing more and more things and there are others who are way more vulnerable. And then you look at the the transmute is just one. Like look what Kanye and Trump with their crazy shit about Jewish people just recently and and there's this There's all sorts of vulnerable people in our society right now that don't necessarily have that lifeline that you were just talking about. I I feel like there's a great fear for that, that they need more allies, right? They need more people to stand up and say it out loud that this is wrong.
2: I think it might be important for us to focus on that for a second. The the rise of semitism in this country over the last couple of years has been terrifying. I I'm not Jewish. I don't come from a Jewish background or culture or anything. In fact, where I grew up, we didn't, we didn't know many Jewish people. I didn't know anything about Jewish culture. You know. But I moved up here you know, and started learning things. I, I worked at the Holocaust Museum here in D.C. for about a year before I started getting more into writing. And the amount of just blatant anti-Semitism that is bandied about by people is horrifying. And I don't think that those of us who aren't Jewish are doing enough to ensure that this bigotry, that this propaganda against Jewish people is held accountable, I mean, it really is scary right now for, for Jewish folks. So we're not doing enough to make sure that we have, you know, the backs of the Jewish community and standing beside them.
1: Yeah, almost no Republicans, maybe not almost, I can't name one who came out and went after Trump for what he recently said.
2: Yeah, no, I don't know of any. Just nothing. Uh, on, on the other hand, when uh, Representative Omar uh had her comments from a couple years ago mm. which you know were not we not well spelled out but, but regardless there was a controversy there i don't think she meant any harm but regardless they had a had conversation she talked to religious leaders they they you know got to a place of of, of understanding a mutual understanding republicans at that time came after her full oh, guns for sure. they wanted her kicked out they wanted her to resign and here, here you have the leader of their party pushing violent anti-semitism and they are nowhere to be found at this point
1: right And if i'm not mistaken uh the representative was speaking about israel the country not jewish people in general she was talking about policies with regard to the palestinians if i'm not mistaken so
2: that's absolutely right two different things
1: entirely one going after a group of people one talking about the government that represents people who are of that group like those Again, goes back to the whole false equivalency. What
2: did she do, by the way? She
1: went out and tried to make it right.
2: That's right. That's right. She admitted that you know, you know that there were there were mistakes they made. That she talked to folks. She she tried to you know, improve as a human being. That's exactly what we wanted out of leaders. That mm-hmm. was a great leadership moment. Where is that with the rest of our political leaders? Is it, but especially within the Republican Party, I we are missing accountability right now in government and media. And it is really going to be the death knell if it's not
1: fixed. I'll both sides one for you because I think we should be equal opportunity critics. If we don't like something you know, from the Democrat side, it, we should be just as loud as if we're pissed off about it on the other side. This whole thing about the people in Congress being able to buy stocks. Like Absolutely. how is that? That's a no brainer that they should all be to get rid of the even the appearance of corruption And it's crazy to me that people still are trying to hang on to that. Like It's not supposed to be a for-profit thing. It's supposed to be serving the country. That's why you go for elective office, not to get rich.
2: I couldn't agree more. Uh, Members of Congress should not be able to hold stock. Uh, Staff should not be able to. Family members of both staff and members of Congress. No one who is in any way connected with Congress or with any regulatory body over stocks should be able to own stock. This is a common sense thing. I'll tell you something else, though, and this is going to piss off some of your listeners, but, but there's a good argument for it. At the same time, we have to argue for better salaries, both for members of Congress and for staff. The reason being, it's not because certain members of Congress don't make enough money, because you know many of them are millionaires. It's because in order to live both in D.C. and your district, mm-hmm. and to pay for your kids, your family, whatever, that's a lot of money you've got to spend. So we need to make it accessible and make it so that no member of Congress needs to do outside work in order to do the job of a representative. Mm -hmm. That is a common sense thing as well, right?
1: That's like the old uh, Babe Ruth joke where they said, you know, you made more money than the president. It's like, I had a better year. I hit better.
2: (laughs) Good old babe. (laughs)
1: you played sports in in high school correct
2: I sure did I sure did I played football
1: what, what was your position
2: uh defensive end
1: did you make a lot of tackles I, were you ferocious uh, I
2: actually I did I did you know I, I was I am not a natural athlete this is uh, Texas so football speak. we're talking about this is Texas football right yeah. so it's a different it's different level um, and I, I definitely was not even close to being among the best athletes of you know the folks that I knew or the the young folks that I knew But I worked at it. It was really important to me to improve. And so, you know, I I show up to practice. I put my all into it. I would listen to the coach. I would, you know, try to make adjustments here and there. And pretty soon I was getting actually not too bad. I started my entire junior year. I got something like, I want to say 14 or 15 sacks, which is pretty good for junior year. Uh, It didn't play my senior year. But, uh, you know, that is something I look back on. I'm really proud of it.
1: Why did you join the army? What, what year was that? 2004, 2005. Five, yeah,
2: what what 2005. drove you
1: to, to join the military?
2: So I was attending Austin community college a couple months after high school during their early fall session. And I came home one night, I was living with my grandmother in, in South Austin, came home one night to news that the death toll in Iraq, I think it just hit a thousand if I'm not mistaken. And although I was firmly against the invasion, uh, felt that we had no business being in Iraq, I still felt this pull to serve. You know, my father had served, both my grandfathers had served. And I felt incredibly guilty that here I was, this able-bodied young person. There were people my age fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan. And if they weren't fighting, they were serving in some kind of humanitarian capacity. And I wasn't doing anything. So you know, I went to the recruiter's office the next day, uh, had the discussion, and I signed up. And I was, I was, I was a bit of an inseparable hard ass about it too. I wanted to join the infantry, and I wanted to do it immediately. I, I felt that was the most honorable pathway to take. Mm-hmm. Now, if I could go back and do it again, I probably would have made different decisions. Let me tell you. Uh, but I think it was actually good that I went that route uh, because it was incredibly challenging. It really took me out of my comfort zone. Like that was the furthest out of my comfort zone I could have gone, by the way, is is joining the army infantry. And it taught me a lot about myself and others in, in ways that I would not have learned otherwise.
1: When you made the transition to becoming Charlotte, though, that was some years later, was that a bigger struggle? What was going on in your head while you're in the military, even more than had you been just in civilian life?
2: I mean, it, it, gender dysphoria, uh, and by the way, for the folks who are listening, gender dysphoria is the, uh, how do I put this the right way? It is the, the clinical uh, diagnosis for someone who is transgender. Uh, mm-hmm. you, you have to get the diagnosis in order to proceed with the rest of the parts of your transition. If for whatever parts you do make, because not all trans people are able to transition completely. Mm-hmm. For, for, for one, healthcare costs. Most healthcare plans do not cover transition care. So you have a lot of trans people who can't afford it. So they have to just make the best of a shitty situation, right? Now I'm fortunate I do have healthcare, I'm I'm okay. Um, But anyway, gender dysphoria is something that I've dealt with my entire life. There was always something off. And when I was younger, I couldn't pinpoint it. I didn't have a vocabulary for it. I just knew innately that I wanted to be a girl, that I was a girl, but I didn't know how to talk about this. You know, growing up in Central Texas, you know, you go to school, you go to football practice, you know, I, I had a part-time job at some point, you know, my junior and senior year, I had responsibilities and I was a very serious young person. I, I wanted to get shit done, you know, uh, go accomplish great things. That was my, that was my plan. But meanwhile, there was this voice in the back of my head that just made everything hellish. You know, I hated my body, not, not in the normal teenage way. Cause you know, most teenagers hate something about their body, mm-hmm. whether it's acne or weight or whatever, that wasn't me. I just wanted to fucking burn the whole thing down and start over, and I didn't know why. So instead of rebelling, which a, y- a lot of young people and, and a lot of young people understandably do this—they rebel like by, by you know fucking off in classes or dropping out or whatever—and I'm, I'm very sympathetic to that—I went the opposite route. I decided, okay, if if I can't settle this internal anxiety within me, I am going to do everything else to the the best of my ability. I'm going to get the best grades. You know, I'm gonna, I ran for city council my senior year of high school. You know, I do all, I did all these things. And that wasn't, that wasn't a healthy approach though, because I was running away from this very internal truth about myself. And it didn't work. Now, if I had had an adult in my life who could have pulled me aside and said, Hey, what the hell's going on here? Let's talk about this. Maybe things would have gone much differently. But at the time, I was really bearing a lot of anxiety. And unfortunately, that's why we see so many trans non-binary and really lgbtq kids commit suicide they have no one to talk to they feel so alone in the world and when they have no one to talk to they take their own life or they hurt themselves
1: is it healthy for you to go over it again or are you kind of like all right dude let's move on to other subjects at this point
2: no 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 you know I, i you know not every trans person like and in fact i would say most trans people don't like talking about this but I, I, at this point, it's just so much a part of what I do is talking to folks and educating them and really contextualizing. Because I think there are a lot of folks, Kenny, a lot of good folks out there, cisgender folks, that is people who aren't transgender, who think of transgender people as this, I don't know, this this thing where we wake up and we just want to be a different gender overnight. That is not the case. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I would most of so. us yeah.
2: struggle for years sure. trying to deny this you know I, I I can't tell you how many years I would go to church every Sunday and pray for God to cleanse me of this need you know asking God just to take this away like please take away this this need within me to do something and it took me a long time to figure out that God meant this as a gift you know this is a gift of perspective it is a gift of being able to look at others and understand wh- how they are in their own shoes. And I wish more people saw it that way instead of thinking that we wake up one day and just want to be something right. else. That is not the case.
1: I notice sometimes on your Twitter, you'll, you'll show yourself and you, and I can't tell, are you being funny or are you really proud? Or is it a hybrid? You're like, I look like smoking hot today. You're like, you're just saying it straight up. I'm
2: saying it straight up. I'm not sure. Tr- well, you know, I mean,
1: there's a little I, irony I think- to it. Maybe.
2: I think the, the irony there is more about the, um, you know, being humorous with conceit, right? Because we all, you know, there there are divas who are who are gorgeous.
1: But I mean, how many how many girls do I know in my life that put a sexy shot of them on Instagram <laughs> and they say it without saying it, right? They're, That's right. Oh, That's hot. right. Look at me, I'm on Instagram. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. You're just doing but the same thing. I do thing. believe that. I do believe that. I really like how I look. I love the way I look. I'm I'm very confident in my own skin. I, I will take this over being in the closet every day and twice on Sundays. <laughs> now, I know that there are a lot of folks who look at me and uh, they don't uh, necessarily find my parents attractive. And I think that's a problem for them to figure out. I, I just, I have no time for it. I like the way I look. I'm very happy that I came out. And that's all there is to it.
1: Yeah, you need to be to love yourself first, right? Be satisfied right. with your decision and how you've conveyed it
2: one last thing on there. I'll just say, you know, what I really hope for those folks who cannot, I would say accept that I'm happy with my appearance is that I really hope that they'll have the kind of comfort in their own skin that I have in mine. Right. That's what we should hope for here.
1: Right. You uh, advocating for trans folks could be beneficial to anybody, a straight person, right? Anybody to be more comfortable in how they go about their day. Right. That's right. Tell yeah. me about this project that Gretchen and I supported for your birthday. You reached out on Twitter and said, anybody who wants to celebrate my birthday, we're doing that's a cool right. thing. It's to benefit some HBCU kids.
2: That's right. And by the way, thanks to you and Gretchen for that very generous donation. Y'all really helped out. I appreciate it. I have a thank you note coming your way next week. No by worries. The way. This
1: was enough right here.
2: Um, no, no, I'm still going to write it. That's, that's what I do. I write thank <laughs> you notes. Um, So for about 10 years, I have supported this organization called Running Start, and this organization brings young women and some non-binary young people to D.C. and trains them on how to engage in politics and policy and media so they get to meet members of Congress, uh, they get to learn how to write press releases, they get to learn how to do interviews. It's a really great, um, I would say, advocacy training program. And and, and one of the cool things about it is that it's nonpartisan. So we get Republican young women, we get Democratic young women, we get young women who don't know what they believe, but they want to get involved in in civics, which I think is great. And on our board, we have about six or seven Republicans. And these are folks who I have dinner with. Uh, We'll talk about strategies on how to get more young people involved, more young women involved specifically. Uh, And so for my birthday, uh, every year for the last 10 years, I've done a fundraiser. Started, I think, in 2011 or 2012, I forget which. Uh, and usually I'll raise about 10000 each year. And this usually pays for scholarships for young women to come to D.C. and take part in the program. Well, this year we did something a little different. Because next month, uh, Running Start is going to partner uh, with, this, with this other organization, XC Leader is their name, uh, to bring 50 young women from historically Black colleges or universities to D.C. to do a specific training program for HBCU women. Uh, and Running star reached out. and They're like, "Hey, your birthday's coming up. Can we do a little something different this year? Can we raise money for them to travel to the country? Because a lot of these young women don't have that that kind of fund uh, funding, right?" And I was blown away by the response, Kidding. I mean, it was just incredible. We we started the fundraiser with a goal of ten thousand, which is usually pretty ambitious. And by five o'clock that afternoon the same day, we had raised more than twenty two thousand dollars, which which is enough to fund every young woman from an HBCU in this program who wants to travel to the conference. And and you were part of that. And I can't thank you enough for that.
1: I appreciate it. I'm glad it's going to work out. When, is, when does that happen? That is November 11th. Okay. Yeah. That's yeah. right after our earnest work <sighs> has helped us prevail in the election on that Tuesday. What oh, are you going to do? This is October 19th. As we speak, you're probably airing, you know, early November is my guess. What are you going to do between now and then to try to make for a success on that day of voting?
2: I'm sure I'm not sleeping that much. That's for sure. Uh, it's going to be calling voters. I'm doing. Um, I'm hosting a, a voter bank for uh, the DNC on Friday. So thousands of volunteers will, from around the country, will log into Zoom and. We'll do a virtual phone bank where we're calling voters in Pennsylvania and Ohio and Florida and all these states. I'll be raising a lot of money. I'm on the board of directors for this organization called LPAC. LPAC is the nation's largest queer women political organization. So we we raise money for you know the the seven queer women who are on the House ballot. Uh, we raise money down down the ballot for state reps and state senators. So anyway, I'll be raising a lot of money for them. And and the third thing I'll be doing is I'm going to be going and knocking on doors. So I'm going to go up to Abigail Spanberger's district and, and knock on doors for her. I'm going to go to Danica Rome's district and knock on doors for her. You know, we're going to make sure that we leave it all out on the field. That's what you do in an election like this. You you go out there, you give everything you got so that you don't feel like shit the morning after an election and feeling like you didn't do everything you could. We all know that feeling when you're in a football game and, fourth quarter, and the fourth quarter ends and you were off by two or three points. You barely lost. And you know you didn't put everything you had into it. That is a that is a shitty feeling, and I don't want to feel that way.
1: Do you wish the Democrats were more aggressive than they are? Like I liken it to the Republicans would yes. use seven illegal transfers and try to win a title. Democrats seem to want to win the, you know, the sportsmanship award, the play by the rules. Like I'm not saying don't play by the yeah. rules, but hit the gas a little harder and, and say real things a little more.
2: I think that there are Democrats and some some House Democrats who truly believe that engaging on social issues specifically is gonna hurt them because they don't seem to understand that if we're not filling that vacuum with leadership, if we're not leading by example, Republicans are gonna do that. Trans issues is is a perfect example, right? So a lot of House Democrats this year saw trans issues, and instead of learning more about them so that they could be better prepared, and by the way, they're not that hard to learn. I can teach any congressional candidate in less than an hour how to approach trans issues. It's too easy. But a lot of them are so scared, they're so intimidated by something they don't understand that they would rather not engage on it. Republicans have no problem doing it. Republicans will fill the void, they'll go on radio, they'll go on TV, they'll be blatantly wrong, but they'll still do it because they know that if they're not filling that space, someone else is going to. And I wish Democrats understood that better. But I'll but I'll also say this. President Biden is amazing. I love that man. I really do. I think that President Biden has done an incredible job at stepping up at critical moments to fill that vacuum of leadership and let people know what's right and why they should be following his lead on public policy. And thank God for him for standing beside the trans community.
1: Yeah. I wish we had a a couple more Hakeem Jeffries on the roster personally, you know, like just say it and say it real, say real words. Don't stay in that, that club that the rest of us don't belong to. There's just too much institutionalism as though it's all going to just keep being what it used to be. When I think both of us agree, uh, we got one or two more votes left. Um, What do you want to be when you grow up is my final question.
2: What do I want to be when I grow up? (laughs) A woman who has her shit together—that'd be great. (laughs) Um, You know, gosh, when I was a kid, I really wanted to be a senator. I remember that. I remember being in elementary school and and reading about you know all the great political leaders in our country's history, and I wanted to be a senator. But now that I'm I'm grown up, I really just want to be a good citizen. I do. I, I want to be a good neighbor. I want to volunteer where it's needed. You know, I want to make sure that I'm the kind of person that my friends can rely on in a tough situation. But I also want to be approachable. I want to be the kind of person where someone might disagree with me, but they know that they can talk to me in good faith and that they're going to have someone hear them out. That's what I want to be when I grow up.
1: Those are valid goals. Thank you for being.
2: What about you? What do you want to be when you grow up? Happy. (laughs) take a number kenny
1: (laughs) (laughs) thank you for your time uh i'll keep working on my end you do your job and i'll see you one day in washington i was actually going to look you up but i think it was your birthday you were flying out of town i was in washington for a day and a night oh damn we're gonna we're gonna get beers next time you hear it's gonna be fun and one more thing folks vote.org
2: vote.org vote.org make sure you're registered to vote make sure your friends
1: and family are registered to vote vote.org very nice yes sir hey main is a production of me kenny main and odyssey our senior producer is paul aspen our executive producer is jody avergan and our executive producer for odyssey is lena glazer If you like our show, please rate us, leave a review, and don't forget to subscribe.